Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Yeah, welcome to those of you joining us right now in DeKalb and in Blackberry Creek and in Streamwood Bartlett, as well as here in St. Charles. Blackberry Creek, thank you for lending us your worship leader, Petey, this morning. We appreciate him. Uh, the dude's got just a little bit of energy. <laughs> so we, we love to share our worship leaders across our four campuses. Let's pray together and ask God to be our teacher as we open his holy word. Uh, God, would you help us understand what we're about to dive into? Would you help us make application to our lives uh, your, your word says that we're not only to be hearers of your word, but to be doers of it. So, uh, Spirit of God, be our life coach. Help us put into practice what we hear over the next few minutes in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever noticed that not everybody sees the world exactly as you do? Uh, a first grade teacher found that out not too long ago when she, she asked her students, her seven-year-olds, to complete a number of proverbial sayings. She'd say the first half and they'd call out the second half. And uh, these are well-known sayings that we're all familiar with and adults were, you know, we'd all answer the same way, but kids come up with some pretty interesting ideas. So I figured I'd share a few of these uh, with you today. I'll, I'll play the role of the first grade teacher. I'll call out the first half of the line and you complete it, okay? So here we go. Number one, better safe than Sorry, you know, adults all say better safe than sorry. But if you're a first grader, one of them called out, better safe than punch a fifth grader. <laughs> you know, a fifth grader could beat the snot out of you. You don't punch a fifth grader. Okay, number two, strike while the, strike while the iron is hot. That's how an adult completes it. A first grader called out while the bug is near. <laughs> of course, you don't want the critter to get away. All right, here's another one. Don't bite the hand that don't bite the hand that feeds you, but a first grader said, that looks dirty. <laughs> That's gross. You don't bite a dirty hand. Right. How about this one? A penny saved is a penny earned. Ben Franklin taught that to us as adults. A penny saved to a child is not much. <laughs> what are you gonna get with a penny, right? Okay, one more, one more. If at first you don't succeed, try. try. Yeah, we all keep trying. First grader, if at first you don't succeed, get new batteries. <laughs> uh, well, is, isn't a first grader's perspective refreshing? I mean, seeing, seeing life from somebody else's point of view is always interesting, uh, sometimes enlightening. So let's hear it for diversity. Let's promote the value of pluralism. Uh, welcome to the second week of a six-part series we're calling Worldview. And last week we learned that a, a person's worldview is that person's philosophy of life. And we said it's like a, a pair of glasses. It's, uh, you know, the worldview is how you see and evaluate everything around you. Each of us has our own set of glasses, our own worldview that's based on input that we receive from our parents, from the news media, from the movies. Uh, we've gone to the books we've read, the, the, the friends we've hung out with. 
We're also influenced by a number of mega worldviews that our culture is always beating the drum for. And some aspects of these mega worldviews, some aspects are helpful, others are quite harmful. So in the course of this series, we're evaluating six of the most popular worldviews from the perspective of God's word, the Bible. So, so what is good and what is not so good about each of these worldviews? And the, the challenge here is to make sure that our worldview, each of our worldviews, is in alignment with God's worldview. That we see the world as God sees the world. So last week we studied the worldview of individualism. And by the way, if you missed that sermon, I would encourage you, go online. It's real simple to do. You can listen to it. You can watch it. You don't want the world squeezing you into its mold. So you want to hear what, what God's word has to say about individualism. Now, today our topic is pluralism. Uh, pluralism is as American as apple pie. I mean, if you take out a coin and you look at it, you'll see the expression stamped on the coin, e pluribus unum, e pluribus Unum. From the many, from the many, one. Americans are a diverse group, right? We come in all sorts of colors and languages and cultural backgrounds, talents, personal interests. This is pluralism, generic pluralism. But pluralism has also become a popular worldview, and it's a worldview that makes a strong declaration about religious beliefs and moral standards. The worldview of pluralism declares there is no right or wrong when it comes to these matters. You know, everybody has a piece of the truth. Every religious belief, every moral standard is equally valid. Well, this is where the worldview of pluralism parts company with biblical Christianity. I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Okay, it's a few books into your New Testament, the second half of your Bible. And uh, while you're turning, let me give you some historical background, some capital C. C stands for, oh golly, let's set my water down. I got ready to sit and C stands for, God, we did it better the second time. C stands for context. And you've learned around here that whenever you read a Bible passage, find out the historical background and you'll be able to uh, you know, decipher what God's saying to you better through that passage. So in Acts chapter 4, a couple of Jesus' closest followers, original disciples by the name of Peter and John, they're on their way to the temple to pray. Now, shortly before this, Jesus had died on the cross, been resurrected, and after several weeks ascended back to heaven. It's now after that time. Peter and John are headed to the temple. They get to the gate of the temple. There is a crippled beggar there asking them for money. And Peter looks at the, at the beggar and he says, I don't have any money, but what I do have, I'll give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And the guy stands up and walks. In fact, scripture says he starts jumping around. So we just imagine him you know, doing some moves and whatever. And the, the local populace, they are thrilled. Peter and John are immediately popular with them. They are not so popular, however, with the local religious leaders in Jerusalem, because these religious leaders just weeks before put to death a blasphemer by the name of Jesus. And now these dudes are walking around doing miracles in Jesus' name. Not good. So they haul Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the ruling council, the religious ruling council. And they ask them to give an account for this miracle done in the name of blasphemer Jesus. Pick it up at verse 8. 
When Peter, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God, for your holy word. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter says, only Jesus can save people. Only Jesus. Now, does it make you a bit nervous when you hear that, that, that declared so blatantly? I, th- I think our squeamishness is due in part to the fact that we have grown up in a culture that has been shaped to a, a large degree by pluralism, and pluralism declares there is no single way. There's no, no one only way. So is Peter wrong when he says Jesus is the only way to salvation? Is Peter mistaken? You know, worse, is Peter a bigot? Is he a narrow-minded bigot? Or... Is he telling the truth? Okay, today we're going to look at three vital aspects of Christianity. If each of these is true, then the opposing, the opposite viewpoint can't also be true. This is basic logic. This is what they call the law of contradiction. The law of contradiction says, hey, if 2 plus 2 equals 4, then 2 plus 2 cannot also equal 6 or 8 or 13. So here's the first aspect of Christianity we're going to consider. Number one, a unique Jesus. And if you haven't found your outline yet, I encourage you to pull it out from your program or find it on your phone app and uh, fill in the blanks as we go along. Look at verse 10 of today's reading. I mean, Peter packs a lot of information about Jesus into this verse. For starters, second line, Peter refers to Jesus as Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In other words, uh, Christianity's Jesus is a real person with a, with a real hometown, with a real personal history, and you can check him out if you want. He's not. He is not some mythical figure. Now, Bertrand Russell disagrees with that claim. Uh, Bertrand Russell was a famous philosopher and atheist uh, who wrote a best-selling book called Why I Am Not a Christian. Uh, Russell was a, a, a Nobel Prize winner, and he argues in his book, and I quote, historically it's quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all, and even if he did, we know nothing about him, end quote. Bertrand Russell was absolutely wrong. We have got four detailed biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Now, skeptics object that these these so-called biographies were written long after, centuries after Jesus lived, by which time his words and deeds had become exaggerated as the stories were passed from generation to generation. So what we get in the New Testament, the skeptic says, is a legendary Jesus, but not an actual historical Jesus. You know, that, that, that objection sounds like something I read about George Washington uh, some time ago. Uh, many of us are familiar with popular stories 
about our country's first president. But what you may not know is that many of those stories were made up by a guy named Mason Weems. Weems was a 19th century preacher. Can't trust those preachers, right? And he felt that the country needed a larger-than-life hero, okay? A founding president who's a superhero. And so he made up stories. He made up that story about young George Washington uh, who couldn't tell a lie. Uh, I cut down the cherry tree. You know, absolutely honest George. He's the one who made up the tale about George Washington picking up a silver dollar and hurling it all the way across the Potomac River, you know, like a major league outfielder. He's the one who, who, who made up the story about uh, pious George Washington kneeling in the snow at Valley Forge and praying. Uh, a story that Norman Rockwell picked up on and, and painted a picture of. But actually, there's no historical record of any of these things taking place. So isn't that the way it is with the four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament? Weren't they written long after Jesus lived with a large dose of legendary exaggeration? No. Actually, they're, they're first-century eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. First-century eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. Lee Strobel is a Yale Law School graduate, a uh, former award-winning journalist for the Chicago Tribune, and a one-time atheist, and he set out to refute Christianity uh, by undermining by just devastating, pulling apart the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. And in the midst of his research, he, be he became convinced that this is actually pretty good history. And he put his faith in Jesus, became a Christ follower. Uh, you could read, by the way, what he discovered in his book, The Case for Christ. It's been a, a bestseller for years now. We carry it in our bookshop across our four campuses. The Case for Christ, good, good beach book for the summer. Okay, now let's go back to Acts 4. What else does Peter claim about Jesus, verse 10, besides the fact that G Jesus is a real historical figure who actually did and said what's written about him in the New Testament? Okay, look at the middle of the verse. Peter claims that Jesus was crucified and then raised from the dead by God the Father. Amazing stuff. Crucified. You know, Peter explains elsewhere in the book of Acts you know, that, that Jesus laid down his life voluntarily. He chose to give up his life. His life was not taken, to him, taken from him by the bad guys. His crucifixion was a planned event. And then God raised him from the dead. After three days being buried in the grave, he was raised back to life, seen by over 500 people at various times during a, a several-week period. And then before their very eyes was ascended back to heaven. Peter isn't finished yet. Look at the closing line of verse 10. He tells the Sanhedrin, if you want to know how this guy got healed, it's Jesus who gave me the power to do this miracle. He's how the lame man got healed. And then just as a stinger, if you, you continue reading in verse 11, Peter quotes an Old Testament prophecy written hundreds of years earlier, and he says, and Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy and other prophecies. Wow. Wow. These are astounding claims, which is why I wince every time I hear somebody who's been influenced by pluralism say, well, all major world religions teach pretty much the same thing. 
I want to say, are, are you kidding me? I mean, the, the core teaching of Christianity revolves around the person of Jesus, who Jesus is. And you think all religions teach pretty much the same thing? Judaism teaches that Jesus was a great moral teacher, but certainly not the Son of God, not a worker of miracles, did not, was not raised from the dead, is not the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, no. Islam, which refers to Jesus in the Quran as Isa, Islam teaches that Jesus did do miracles and that he was a great prophet. You know, how, however, there was nothing special about his death. In fact, God whisked him to heaven before he was put on the cross. Somebody else was on the cross. That wasn't Jesus who died there. And while Jesus was a great prophet, he was superseded later by an even greater prophet by the name of Muhammad. That's what Islam teaches. Hinduism teaches that Jesus, as a teenager, traveled to the Far East, where he studied yoga and other Hindu traditions, and then he came back to his hometown area and became a guru among the Jews. And they revere much of his teaching. He was admired by uh, Hindus like Mahatma Gandhi. Okay? But, but Jesus, when he died, nothing special about his death, other than the fact that he passed through the portal of death to, to merge into the Godhead like many of us will one day do. Now, Buddhism sees Jesus as an enlightened man, but there have been many enlightened men, and so they'll quote his teaching. The Dalai Lama loves to quote Jesus' teaching on love. Uh, you will not, however, hear the Dalai Lama quoting Jesus' claims to be God. You'll never hear him quote Jesus' claim in John uh, 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Whenever you hear a friend or a school teacher or a talk show host spout the pluralist mantra, well, all religions are pretty much the same, please understand that you're listening to someone who hasn't done their homework. That is absolute nonsense. The central teaching of Christianity has to do with the person of Jesus Christ. And all religions differ vastly, and they're mutually exclusive in their views about who Jesus is. They can't all be right at the same time. You know, on one occasion, Jesus asked his disciples, he said, Okay, buds, you got your ears to the ground. Who do people say I am? And they said, well, some people say this, and some people say that, and they went on for a, a few minutes, and then Jesus looked him in the eye, and he said, yeah, but who do you say I am? And that's Jesus' question for you today. Who do you say I am? If you've never made up your mind about Jesus, I would encourage you, before you do, you know, at least show him the respect of reading one of the historically accurate biographies that you'll find in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, okay? I recommend Mark because it's the shortest. If you read a chapter a day, it'll take you five minutes a day, and you could read it in less than two weeks' time. Okay, because until you've read a biography of Jesus, what you believe about Jesus is going to be your own speculation. It's going to be pluralistic nonsense. Number two. A unique salvation. A unique salvation. Let's go back to Acts 4. I want you to take another look at verse 12. And as I read it to you again, I want you to imagine Peter saying these words to uh, your group of friends in the high school cafeteria. Or to your golfing buddies. 
Or imagine Jesus saying this to the women in your book club, okay? How would, how would these groups respond to verse 12 of Acts 4? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, other than the name of Jesus, given to mankind by which we must be saved. What would your friends accuse Peter of if they heard him say this? Intolerance, right? Intolerance. You know, that, that's the worst no-no in a pluralistic culture, intolerance. Now, let me say a word about intolerance, you know, before we look at why Christianity's path to salvation is so unique. Uh, tolerance no longer means what it used to mean. Okay, tolerance used to mean, it had to do with social etiquette, it meant that you were to teach, uh, treat others graciously and in an accepting fashion, even if you disagree with their viewpoint, even if you think they're dead wrong. Okay, you treat other people courteously, graciously, in an accepting fashion. But the meaning of tolerance has shifted in recent years. It, now people say that what, what tolerance means is not to be gracious and accepting toward other people, but to be accepting and affirming of their viewpoints, to celebrate their viewpoints, to, to, to see all viewpoints as equally valid. It's really... Let's suppose, just for the sake of argument, and we'll be a little ridiculous here, let's suppose you believe that the moon is made of green cheese. Now, I happen to believe that the moon is made of a, a molten iron a core surrounded by a rocky crust. Is it okay for me to believe that I'm right and you're wrong? Is, is it intolerant for me to say, you know, I, I think you got your facts mixed up? Of course it's not. As long as I treat you respectfully, as a person, graciously, acceptingly. So Peter's statement in Acts 4 that Jesus is the only path to salvation is not intolerant in spite of how strenuously pluralists object to it. By the way, pluralists are pretty intolerant of people like Peter. So now what we really should be wrestling with here regarding Peter's statement is why? Why does Peter say that Jesus is the only path to salvation? Why does Peter insinuate that all other paths are dead ends? Well, again, let's consider for a moment the paths to salvation that are pro proposed by the other major world religions that I mentioned a few moments ago. Be because just as major world religions differ dramatically from Christianity with respect to what they teach about Jesus, so they differ dramatically from Christianity with respect to what they teach about the path to salvation. So, so when you hear people say that all major religions teach pretty much the same thing, don't you believe it? Now, you've probably heard me explain before that although there are great differences among major world religions and what, what they teach about the path to salvation, they, they, they do all operate on the basis of do. That, this is one thing they, they have in common, D-O. There's something we need to do in, in order to earn or merit salvation. And j just a side note here for a moment. What is salvation? You know, we're talking about the path to salvation, but what is salvation? Okay, to, to a Muslim, what is salvation? It's an eternity in paradise surrounded by good, good food and beautiful virgins. To the, to the Buddhist, 
their view of paradise of heaven is nothing like that. Salvation. Salvation is arriving at a state of nothingness where you suddenly become like a drop in an ocean. You get absorbed. Totally different views of salvation. So what is the path to this salvation? Because not only are the versions of salvation quite different, so are the paths, the ways of getting there. Although all the other religions other than Christianity tell us there's something we must do. D.O. Judaism says the path to salvation is keep the Ten Commandments. Islam says follow the five pillars of the faith and do good deeds. And by the way, even if you, even if you follow the five pillars and do good deeds your whole life, Allah may still turn his back on you because you never know how Allah's going to respond. Hinduism says the path to salvation is to get rid of all evil from your life, not a speck of evil in your life. Now, you probably won't be able to do this in one lifetime, so you'll need to be reincarnated several times until you get rid of all the evil. And if you do, then you'll merge with God. Okay, this is salvation for a Buddhist. You know, it has to do with enlightenment. Salvation has to do with, with, with enlightenment and getting rid of desire. Okay, desire is a bad thing. As I said a few moments ago, you want to get to the place where you're the single drop in the ocean that gets absorbed. These are the paths to salvation. But Christianity's path to salvation is not spelled D-O. You know, these other religions are do this, do that, do, 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 do. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, done. There's something that has been done for us. Why? Well, because Christianity teaches we could never earn our salvation, even though we'd like to think we could. Christianity says we have this habit of measuring ourselves against other people, and we can always find people who are worse than us, so we look pretty darn good. But unfortunately, God doesn't measure us against other people. God measures us against himself, and God is perfectly holy. His standards are absolutely righteous, and so Christianity teaches we're all in trouble. Whatever religion or belief system you choose other than Christianity, you are doomed to failure because you can never do enough, you could never do enough to make the grade. But in Christianity, Jesus Christ has made the grade for you. He has done done it all. He came to the planet and gave his life on a cross because he wanted to bear the penalty of your sin, and the penalty is death. You've disconnected from God, the giver of life. Jesus took the death. You deserve to die. And he was raised from the dead, and he now offers you as a gift to be received, forgiveness and eternal life. All he asks is that you surrender your life to him. It's D-O-N-E, done. How do we own this salvation? For ourselves, well, a couple of chapters earlier in the book of Acts, Peter's preaching to a huge crowd about Jesus and salvation, and when he finishes, he wants people uh, to know what Jesus expects of them, because they're calling out, you know, what, what do we do to access this salvation? And Peter's response, Acts 2, verse 38, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent 
and be baptized. Repent means to humbly acknowledge your sin before God. It's not doing something. It's, it's just telling God you know that you've been wrong. Tell God how grateful you are that Jesus has paid for your wrongs on the cross. Tell God that you want his spirit to come live on the inside to help you live in a right fashion. That's, that's what repentance means. It's just to do a 180 degree turnaround. You know, be baptized, repent and be, be baptized means that you surrender your life to Jesus as Savior and King. That's not, surrender isn't doing anything, it's, it's saying you've done it all, I surrendered to you. And then you go public with your decision by getting dunked in Jesus' name. Now does, is baptism what saves you? No, baptism doesn't save you, Jesus saves you. But let me quickly add, if you're not willing to get baptized, it does call into question the sincerity of your surrender. I mean, if you're genuine in your surrender to Christ, then why wouldn't you go public and say, Jesus is my Savior and King? By the way, your next opportunity to do that at Christ Community Church, if you've never done it already, if, you, if you've surrendered to Christ but you've never gone public with it, three weeks from now, Father's Day weekend, we deliberately put it on Father's Day because we always like to challenge guys this time of year to step up. If you want to be a role model to your family, if you want to show what following Jesus is all about, then men, if you're a dad and you've never been baptized, go to one of our baptism orientation classes and participate in the celebration on Father's Day weekend. Plural, pluralism fails to recognize a unique Jesus, fails to recognize a unique, unique salvation. Number three, fails to recognize a unique transformation. Transformation. Let's go back to the story in Acts one last time. You know, after Peter tells the religious leaders of the day that Jesus is the only path to salvation, uh, everybody, surprisingly, is pretty impressed with these guys. You know, they hate them, but they're pretty impressed with them. Look at their response in verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Okay, there's something about Peter and John that is so winsome and the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin connects it with their relationship with Jesus. Jesus has transformed these guys in some special way. Let me give you a few indications of this transformation. First, note, note the word courage in the middle of verse 13. In fact, circle it if you got your own Bible. When they saw the courage of Peter and John. Because here's Peter and John standing before the ruling council of the day, the council that has the power to put them to death like they just put Jesus to death weeks earlier, and Peter and John are declaring that salvation is found in Jesus and nobody else. That's courage. And it's a transformation of Peter, friends, because if you'll recall, just a few weeks earlier when Jesus was arrested, Peter, in a cowardly fashion, had denied even knowing Jesus three times, one time to a little girl. So, so, so what made this squeaky mouse into a roaring lion? Something to do with Jesus. They, they figured these guys had been with Jesus. Some courage here. Here's, a, here's another indication of transformation in, in these two guys. The leaders of the Sanhedrin note that they were unschooled, ordinary men. 
what these words mean basically is they looked at Peter and John and they said, these guys are uneducated. They don't have our training. They don't have our schooling. And yet, they are so wise. They've got so much insight, so much discernment, so much savvy. Where did these, fisher, these uneducated fishermen get this? What transformed them into wise people? They were courageous. They were wise. Let me give you a third one. You go back up to verse 9. You know, Peter is giving explanation of how this guy was healed. And he says, you know, if you want to know how this act of kindness was done, this act of kindness, these guys were kind, they were compassionate. Which again, if you know the story of Peter, he did not start out as a kind, compassionate guy. I mean, read the gospel accounts. You know, there was the time that those moms and dads brought their children to Jesus and said, hey, would you bless them? Remember Peter's response? Hey, get those kids out of here. Come on, Jesus doesn't have time for kids. Remember the time that Jesus was, he was teaching a large group of people, 5,000 men plus women and children, and he looked out and saw that they were famished. They needed something to eat. And he said to his disciples, get them something to eat. Remember Peter and the other disciples? Remember the response? They say, just send them into town. Let them fend for themselves. Such a compassionate guy. Or how about the time they're walking through the village of Jericho and there's a blind guy by the name of Bartimaeus on the side of the road saying, Jesus, save me. And Peter goes over and says, shut up. <laughs> Pipe down, blind man. <laughs> this, is, this is the Peter who now stops at the gate on his way to prayer and says, I'm not going to take another step until I do something for you that you desperately need. And he heals him in the name of Jesus. See, the transformation that Jesus brings to a person's life in a, in a pluralistic culture where people who are courageous and wise and kind are in short supply, Christianity has a reputation for transforming lives. Now, how does Christianity do it? Well, the transformation begins when you surrender your life to Jesus. If you're a Christ follower, you know this. Jesus begins to do his, his work in you to make you more and more like him. And he provides you as a follower of his with, with two resources that you won't find in pluralism. First resource, moral absolutes that you'll find in scripture. Okay, moral absolutes. Now, pluralism doesn't believe in moral absolutes. Pluralism doesn't believe in a universal standard of right and wrong. Pluralism promotes moral relativism. Everybody gets to define their own standard of right and wrong. There are no moral absolutes. I, I got to smile every time I hear a pluralist say that. There are no moral absolutes. Well, you just made a morally absolute statement there. You know, it's like saying, I am certain there are no certainties in life. It's self-contradictory. And, and not only that, nobody can live consistently on the basis of moral relativism. And you, you will find that people believe there are universal absolutes out there. Just hang around them for, for some length of time. When, when your moral, morally relativistic uh, friend says to you, you know, the boss should have given me a raise for all the hard work I do, or that guy shouldn't have cut me off in traffic, you just look at him and say, what is this should and shouldn't business? I thought everybody gets to do their own thing, make up their own standard of right and wrong. What's your beef? 
In the Bible, God's word provides Christ followers with moral absolutes. And Jesus directs his followers you know, what to do with their money. Jesus is, you know, he's got directives in his teaching about what you're to do with your money. Jesus has got directives. He's got moral absolutes about how you're to treat other people, how you're to treat the elderly. You'll find it in God's word. You know, how to treat your enemies, you know, the people who abuse you, you know, how to treat uh, those who are poor. He's got moral absolutes about who to have sex with and who not to have sex with. He's got moral absolutes about what your priorities ought to be and how you ought to spend your time and where you ought to put your energies. And you, you may not like these moral absolutes to begin with, but you'll discover over time that Jesus is using them to make you more like him. And you'll say, thank you, God. Thank you that there is a, a straight wall I could lean my crooked back up against. The other transformation tool that's unique to Christianity is willpower. See, in a pluralistic culture, there, there are plenty of voices telling us what to do and not do for our own good and the good of people around us. But where do we find the willpower to put all this helpful advice into practice? You know, if you're following a major religion, where do you find the willpower to obey the Ten Commandments in Judaism? Or, or follow the five pillars in Islam or the seven paths to peace in Buddhism. And, and in this day and age, where so much advice outside of religion is passed out, a marriage counselor says you got to communicate with your spouse. The doctor says you got to exercise. The dietician says you got to give up sugar. Your best friend says you got to drop that knucklehead boyfriend of yours. Samaritan's Purse says you got to support a refugee family in Bangladesh. The law says you can't uh, drive and text at the same. Many voices, good advice. Our problem is not lack of advice. Our problem is lack of willpower to put any of it into practice. And this is another uniqueness of Christianity. See, when a person surrenders to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, comes to live on the inside. You know, we celebrated this last weekend. Last weekend was Pentecost weekend. You know, a celebration of Jesus ascending back to heaven and then pouring out his Spirit on his followers. And the Spirit of God now gives you the will, you know, the want to, as well as the power, the ability to pull off what, what you'd like to do, the habits you'd like to change, the addictions you'd like to break, the character you'd like to see develop, he gives you the willpower to do that. Where else are you going to find this? Is your life being transformed like Peter's was? Do you have a standard of moral absolutes that you're living by? Do you have the indwelling Holy Spirit giving you the willpower to put it into practice? Don't, don't let the world, don't let pluralism squeeze you into its mold. You can have a unique Jesus, a unique salvation, a unique transformation. Now, in just a moment, we're going to sing a closing song about Jesus being the only way and our only hope. And as we sing, we're going to collect our gifts. Let me just remind you that during the summer, where giving can sort of ebb and flow in our lives because we're out of town and in town. If you want to be a good steward, if one of the transformations you'd like to see in your life 
is that you become a generous person along the lines of God's moral absolutes, what he says about giving in his word, then I'd encourage you to consider going online, getting that app and being able to, to give on a consistent basis even when you're not here in person. And uh, also, as I said a week ago, it, it keeps us regular during a season when we're tempted to spend so much on ourselves that God gets the leftovers. So I would encourage you as you give to give generously and to consider using that, uh, that app the online giving opportunity. Let me pray with you, and then we'll sing our song and collect our gifts. Lord God, thank you that when there was no way, you made a way through Jesus. I mean, the truth of the matter is, all the do systems, D-O, they fail because we're powerless to do what we should do. And we're just so grateful that in Christ, we found someone who has D-O-N-E done it for us and now offers us salvation as a gift. God, I pray for those who have yet to receive that gift. For those who are sitting under the sound of my voice right now at one of our four campuses or watching us online and they've never surrendered their lives to Jesus, I pray that this would be the day they say, yes, I need to do this. And right now in the quietness of their heart, they would, they would be saying, Jesus, take my life. And God, for those of us who've put our hope and trust in Jesus, we're surrounded by people every day in a pluralistic culture who don't believe Christ is the only way, who haven't surrendered to him. We've got the message. Give us boldness. Help us not to be quieted, stilled, silenced by this dominant worldview that says, sit down and shut up. Don't tell me about your Jesus. Help us to be bold. Help us to know that in Christ, hope is found for eternal life. And so, so may we be fearless in presenting this to our friends and loved ones. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.